A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. That's when you'll know that he's around. You'll see him if you look. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night. Mum, does it hurt the boy? Mum, does it live under the bed? Mum? Mummy! Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dawood. And I'm Matt Sanderson, who is mildly freaked out by the fact that you use regular in that intro. Yes, a big mm. thanks to all our Patreon backers, because we're now up to the magic $50. So who do we have to thank for pushing us over the edge? Adam Alexander joined us on Patreon yesterday, but not only did he put down $5, he put down the extra dollar to make it $6 to push us up to the $50 limit. So a big thanks to Adam. Yes, we, we shall sing for you. Oh, shall we sing? <laughs> this might, on yourselves. This might be the last singing now, because uh, we've, uh, we've, we've done quite a bit of singing, and you know we're up to the $50 mark now, so we need to think of a new goal. So we've got our thinking caps on, but if you guys have got any suggestions, then do let us know. Anything to read by our dignity would be much appreciated. I, I, personally, I'm quite happy to carry on singing, so you know, if that's your choice, yeah, just I mean, not only will you get the joy of us singing to you, but you'll know that you've got the added satisfaction of making Paul and Matt really miserable. <sighs> One of the things we want to know from you listeners is how long you want the show to be. So... We've been struggling to kind of keep it down to the sort of 45 minutes, 50 minutes, because we thought that was a good length, or I thought it was a good length. Uh, but the episode 50 went to two hours. Uh, other podcasters podcast sometimes for several hours. Uh, others stick to about 30 to 40 minutes. What's the optimum length for you? So we're going to hold a poll, and obviously you can go online and you can vote. The link to where to vote will be mentioned on our show notes on blasphemoustomes.com. Scott, I looked through the notes you had written for episode 49. You had mentioned that we got episode 50 coming up and that we might have fireworks. <laughs> and bizarrely, bizarrely, when we, on, the eve, on the Sunday evening when we got together to record episode 50, there were bloody fireworks outside and we had to stop for a while. And you know what? They're bloody back tonight. They are. I keep thinking it's the People's Revolutionary Front of Buckingham trying to declare a separatist war, but no, it does sound like fireworks. It might be that. <laughs> we never have fireworks here, apart from like Guy Fawkes Night, maybe New Year, that's about it. Except when we record. Yeah, it's, it's the people of Buckingham rising up in celebration of the fact that we're recording another episode. I think so. <laughs> Something in the air. They can tell because I've occupied the same spot over in the car park opposite the road every uh, every time we come over now. <laughs> the, they know the, we're that here. That is their sign. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
This episode we're going to be talking about two films, Repulsion and The Babadook, which have a thematic link. So they Scott do. tells us. <laughs> yes. Yes, they, they, they have very, very similar themes. We're going to use the format of talking about the two films, and then we're going to give a spoiler alert, at which point, if you want to go and watch them, turn off then, go and watch them, and then maybe come back and listen to the rest. And at the end of the show, we're going to discuss gaming applications that might come from the films, inspirations and so on. Yeah, stuff we can nick. The sceptic in me says that we'll recommend you go and watch one of them. <laughs> I think that'll become apparent as we talk about them. 100% rating, Matt. 100% rating. Yeah. Right. Cool. But before that, we have a new segment. Yay! New segment. Can you sing the theme tune to the new segment now, Scott, like we prepared? Yes, yeah. I, um, yeah, you just, just splice it in here, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you got to, you got to fly some additional effects to that. <laughs> I don't think any are required, really. No, 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 lots of echo. Yeah. Well, we're going to try a new segment starting now, and if it's if it works out, we'll do it every episode. The new segment is our Lovecraftian word of the episode. I thought word of the week scans better, but we're fortnightly. But... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're either going to have to improve our frequency or give up on alliteration. Let's just lie and call it word of the week. Okay, word of the week it is. You just, get, you just hmm. get them all alternate weeks. Yeah, it's a week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, and this week's word is... Gibbous. 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 So what is Gibbous. Technically, gibbous refers to a particular phase in the moon, uh, in astronomical terms, or a range of phases in the moon, uh, when it's between halfway full and full, either waxing or waning. Yeah, I looked it up and it said between 51 and 99% full, so over half, but not quite full. But it means a lot of other things as well. It basically means convex. I don't think Lovecraft ever used it in that context. Lovecraft always seemed to use it as an adjective applied to the moon. And I don't think that, I mean, though, though Lovecraft did have an interest in astronomy, I don't think he was particularly worried about the astronomical accuracy of what he was saying. I think he just liked the way the word sounded. Just there are no other moon phases in Providence, that's all. Yeah. I, every time you see the moon in a Lovecraft story is a gibbous moon. Yes, yeah, yeah. And that's where I came across the word first. Not in Lovecraft, but in application to the moon. Um, and you'll know where this is from, Matt. Looking at me. White Wolf Werewolf, I believe. Um, yeah, I, 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 I have lots of werewolf books. I don't play it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so when I played werewolf, that was the whole thing was a gibbous moon. And that was when we had to learn what the hell that meant. Yeah, one example of our word of the week in action comes from the Call of Cthulhu story itself. That tenebrousness was indeed a positive quality, for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed, and actually burst forth like smoke from its eon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and gibbous sky on flapping membranous wings. So it's a gibbous sky that Lovecraft describes. Yeah, a protuberant work? sky, a convex sky, a sky that's reaching down. Hey, I mean, it sort of does work. I mean, if you're talking about this dark sky, it's almost like the darkness is reaching down. It's oppressive. It's pressing down upon the narrator. 
I want I want to see a fifty one percent complete sky though. <laughs> oh no, I mean that's that fifty one percent is technically just in astronomy referring to the phases of the moon. So it's, uh, uh, Gibbous in general just the bit means you can see you know, is convex. convex rather than concave. Uh, the white bit of the moon that you can see. I still like the idea of being fifty one percent sky because I want to know what hell is in the other forty nine percent. Horror. <laughs> <laughs> And another example from Lovecraft, from Dagon this time. I know not why my dreams were so wild that night, but ere the waning and fantastically gibbous moon had risen far above the eastern plain, I was awake in a cold perspiration, determined to sleep no more. Lots of nodding. And there we do get a gibbous moon. Yeah, that, 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 that is proper gibbous. But how would we use gibbous in everyday, you know... Everyday lingo. If we were just, you know, at the gaming table, or uh, you know, just, you know, in the uh, in the takeaway. Because there is one guy, you know who you are out there if you're listening, who always, in every goddamn scenario I run, always asks, "What's the moon phase up um, in the sky?" Every time he plays in the game, away. <laughs> even to the point where I've researched it and put it in one of my scenarios uh, for publication, just to make sure he was happy. So, do you just say "give us" now? No, I try to actually, if I'm using a historical date, I try to find out on the moon calendar what the phase no, was at that point fuck, in time. Fuck that. <laughs> you're, 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 you're going for Lovecraft in here. The moon is always well, fucking give, give us. us. Yeah. <laughs> give us. Even if it's a new moon, it's a gibbous new moon. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it's pre-gibbous then. <laughs> pre-gibbous, post-gibbous, pre-gibbous. <laughs> But yes, yeah. I mean, how could you use gibbous in everyday conversation? Well, I w- without looking like a pretentious twat, um, gibbering idiot. It's close enough. No, that's gibbering. That's gibbering. <laughs> that's totally different. It's, it's even pronounced differently. Oh, you haven't played enough Munchkin Cthulhu. <laughs> no one has. <laughs> so I knew you could, yeah, casually say that you. Know, well, I think we've got a burst pipe. The ceiling wallpaper's looking a bit gibbous. Everyone will just look at you. Yeah. And say, <laughs> why the hell aren't you calling a plumber? <laughs> yeah, but they'll shut up once they're deluged in water. <laughs> or Matt, could you delve into your gibbous dice bag and draw forth a platonic icosahedron? A cursed icosahedron, yes, probably. <laughs> a cursed icosahedron, yes, indeed. <laughs> it will be if you touch it. <laughs> yeah, it will always roll a hundred for you. <laughs> yeah, I think with Matt's dice, you get to put the emphasis on the second syllable. There, it's not just cursed; it's cursed. <laughs> yeah, I offer this service free of charge to any listener who comes by uh, comes by game of mine at, at conventions. Yeah, yeah, you will have a cursed dice forever. Well, I've heard <laughs> stories of casinos employing people called coolers. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> to to basically go around and suck the luck out of a game or break someone's winning streaks. Oh. They, there's there's your new career, Matt. <laughs> Anytime anyone's playing craps, you just go up and touch their dice, and that's it. Yeah, just 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 dice based games. I do quite well at poker. <laughs> Scott, do you want to launch us off on repulsion? Well, let's, first of all, I think, mention why we've chosen to do these two films back-to-back. Wasn't it because you told us to? Oh, and, yes. And you're one of the few people we can actually think of that's talking here that likes Repulsion. <sighs> let's get out of that out of the way straight away. Anyway, go on, Scott, tell <laughs> us why re- we're doing Repulsion re- repul- and you, you mean Repulsion, one of the greatest horror films ever made? That's not a horror film. Well, why did you make us watch this one? <laughs> <laughs> as, as, as I'll probably discuss uh, in detail later, uh, using the term horror, I think, is very mm, subjective. It was a horrific experience. Oh, yeah, that, that's true, it was. 
<laughs> We're really selling it. <laughs> so the reason we've chosen to do these two films back to back is they do uh, share a number of common elements. They're both uh, about women dealing with past traumas, uh, which are manifesting in ways that you know represent in in very different ways uh, the kinds of things you would encounter in a horror film. Yes. <laughs> the look of not being convinced Sorry, suddenly Scott. washed yeah, out. Yeah, you both. sort of stopped and I was uh, like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. Starting with repulsion. There's somebody there. I can see your shadow. What's the matter? I just want to talk to you, that's all. So repulsion was made in the UK in 1965, so like all good things, it turns 50 this year. And, uh... <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Uh... It follows uh, a young woman called uh, Carol Ledoux, uh, played by a young Catherine Deneuve, uh, who is from Belgium. Uh, she is living in London with her sister, uh, uh, Helen, and uh, working as a manicurist there. She's a very strange woman. She's dreamy, withdrawn, uh, obviously you know, suffering from some kind of mental illness or at least you know, post-traumatic stress. And, you know, this is colouring all her interactions with the people around her. Uh, she's a very attractive woman. She's constantly getting chatted up by men, but seems very, very uncomfortable with this. Uh, and, you know, utterly withdrawn. And, you know, this is the repulsion of the title, that, you know, she, she is repelled by, you know, any sexual advances towards her, uh, which the film is full of. Yeah, it was interesting seeing all the, uh, the street scenes of London and the world as it was in 1965. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it didn't actually seem terribly different. Really? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I could go around and I could recognise a lot of the places that were there. Oh, I see, yes, you can see them, but, yeah, you know, the fashions and the vehicles and oh, yes. everything. Are... Well, and also, sheer number of people is different on the streets of London now. Than and the way people interacted as well. I mean, the, the, the guys in the bar and, the you know, the way people talked to each other and, and interacted and dressed and everything. And the telephone boxes. Carol's sister, Helen, is having an affair with a married man. He keeps coming over to uh, the flat. Carol uh, keeps trying to block out the noises of them having sex by putting a pillow over her head and, you know, trying not to listen to it. She is uh, you know, utterly disgusted whenever she finds anything of, of the boyfriends in the bathroom, his razor or his toothbrush, even going so far as to throw them away at some stage, and just seems disturbed and terrified by having a male presence around. The turning point for her in this seems to be when she encounters a, a, a leering workman on the street who just makes a very crude sexual advance towards her. And from that point on, you know, she, she suffers a series of sort of hallucinations and delusions as the film goes on. And that, that young man then sort of becomes the star of her nightmares all the way through. He sort of becomes the representation of, you know, the, the, this intrusive male sexuality. I hadn't twigged it was the same person, the same actor. Well, it, it is it, up till the end, and you know, we'll get to something mm -hmm. else there. But there's something very significant that happens at the oh, end. I, I know what's yeah, I know what we're, you're going to mention. Helen then goes on holiday to Italy with with her boyfriend, leaving Carol alone in the flat. Carol then, you know, after an incident at work that involves her being sent home after an accident or accidentally, you know, hurting one of the customers. Uh, she then, you know, in, in her isolation there, spirals further into delusion and madness. Uh, and 
This, for me, was the you know the deeply unsettling part of the film because you know they, they, it, I, I found it to be a thoroughly relatable representation of that kind of uh, being locked in your own head as it's turning against you. I, yeah, I found it one of the most you know, if not the most disturbing representation of mental illness I've ever seen on film. Her sister, at some point, you know, was going to make a rabbit for supper. You know, go, you know then you know, it's taken out to dinner by her boyfriend during these two weeks that that Carol's alone in the flat. Her companion there is this steadily rotting rabbit on a plate. No longer is, in the fridge. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, she takes it out of the fridge, puts it down somewhere, and is just sitting there like this dead baby staring at her. That's about as far as we can go without getting into spoilers. We'll carry on with this after the, the spoiler break, but let's let's talk a little bit about you know where the film comes from. This is from Polanski's second feature film, and one of a number of horror films he made. Uh, he's not necessarily, you know, someone you think of as a horror film director, but you know, obviously he made things like Rosemary's Baby, The Ninth Gate, The Fearless Vampire Killers, this, and you know, even The Tenant is borderline horror. Um, as a random aside, well, not not a random aside. One thing that I did find uh, quite interesting in my research about uh, the film, as I looked it up on IMDb, um, Polanski teamed up with the co uh, the co writer on this for another of my favorite uh, favorite films, as I would say, Polanski feature. Frantic. Oh, right, yes. So evidently quite a wide-ranging uh, author or screenwriter. Well, the two of them collaborated on a number of films. Well, quite a few, yeah. yeah. Now, I think one thing that we all differed on you know, quite quite a lot here is the fact that, uh, yeah, I, I get the impression the two of you were very frustrated by the slow build-up. My God, if the first 45 minutes could have been condensed into 10, I'd have been a lot happier. You see, I think that would have killed the film for me. That it, it is, you know, it, it introduces the character of Carol. It lets you know, you know, what's going on with her, who she is as a person. It sets up all these thematic elements that then get incorporated into her kind of nightmare visions later on. And I, I think if you'd, you know, robbed the, the the film of that, then it would have been a lot more enjoyable. It, it would have been emotionally empty. Yeah, it didn't do much for me, Scott. No. Hmm. You know, you know, there was one bit I just remembered actually when my interest my interest kind of sparked was when the Saturday afternoon wrestling came on the TV <laughs> and I was like, oh, I suddenly found myself animated and kind of leaning forward in my seat to, to try and see it better. Up until that point, I've just been pretty well. I'd had to open a bottle of cider and do something just to just to get myself to sit there and, and sit through it. it was, I found it really tedious, I have to say. Oh, yeah, tedious is a very good descriptor for it. No, it's definitely a slow burn. It's a film that takes its time telling its story, but yeah, I, I, I found that to be you know, a, a wonderful character portrayal. When the DVD, my D, the DVD you'd lent me, my PS3 started destroying it. So at 1 hour 5, it skipped forward to 1 hour 25. Just because even the even the player was rebelling, going, End the pain! I, I spent a few minutes trying to fix it, but then I was like, Oh, screw it. I'll just watch it from there. Um, so I probably missed some of the best bits, but um, no. I have sort of seen some of it. No? Matt no. says no. Okay. <laughs> there are only a handful of decent moments in the film, which I will give their credit to later. Let's move on. You can bring me the boy. You can bring me the boy. I think it's going to rain. (laughs) 
on to our second film, um, the one we actually did enjoy, um, The Babadook. Admittedly, every time I hear the word now, I keep having to think, Babadook, duck, duck, which we'll get to. <laughs> yes, film. I think most people have already heard that much, yes. <laughs> um, it starts with a young lady dreaming about a car crash that she was involved uh, involved with, in which we then discover she's a single mum as a result of the father having died in the crash. Um, the father was driving the mother to hospital to give birth to said kid, and this is now what, seven, eight years later. Yeah, about seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's in the run-up to her seventh birthday, this That's takes it. place. And the kid, he's a little bit obsessed with uh, magic tricks and making his own gadgets and toys and such to fend off the monsters he believes are lurking under the bed or in, um, in the wardrobe. And he is also incredibly emotionally disturbed. Oh hell yeah! He, he builds his own little gu- his own little crossbows that he takes into school for one thing. <laughs> but I mean, it's not just that. I mean, it's it's in everything. You know, his, his mother pushes him away the whole time, and he's trying to get her attention. Uh, he's you know he's acting out amongst you know around other kids. Uh, he's you know later on he's constantly screaming for attention. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- this is a very damaged child. Mm. I didn't find him that emotionally disturbed actually. <laughs> Just found him bloody weird, but <laughs> no, it's yeah. I mean, he was behaving, you know, in demanding fashion, and you know, obviously, he'd got troubles at home. But I found him normal's the wrong word, but I didn't find him perhaps that extreme. Yeah, you're talking about a kid who made a homemade crossbow, took it into school, and shot another kid with it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> but. And goes around with a cricket, a cricket ball firing contraption on his back. Yeah. <laughs> and who stands on the top of a swing set to try to get his mother's attention and falls off. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, who pushes another kid out of a treehouse and breaks her nose. Yeah. <laughs> but apart from that, yeah. Apart from that, I thought quite normal. <laughs> yeah. but it, it definitely it sets it up very much the case of yeah we're just going to wait until the lady snaps yeah being a single parent's tough yeah this is all this is all fairly mundane drama that really bores me to, uh, bores me to tears, and then a book turns up, <laughs> Mister Babadook. To be fair, I think that's a children's book every kid should read. It's a great <laughs> book. It is a very good book. It's a one. It's a wonderful piece of artwork and. Funded by Kickstarter. <laughs> what? Seriously, the film, um, the art department was funded yeah. by Kickstarter. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was a very, very low-budget film. Uh, Jennifer Kent, who made the film, uh, did this as a feature reworking of a short film that she did. Uh, yes, I watched that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which which captures the same basic elements of the feature. Yeah. Uh, it's a ten-minute film called Monster, <laughs> and we'll put we'll put a link uh, in the show notes to this. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's worth seeing. Yeah. But yeah, the, the the book Mr. Babadook is a wonderful piece, wonderful piece of art, um, sort of... and really creepy. Oh, yeah, very creepy. If it's in a word or in a look, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and as she reads through this, it slowly becomes um, at least blatant in the young kid's mind that the Babadook's in the house. Ah! So she puts the book away. Of course, the book ends up turning up else um, elsewhere in the house. She decides to tear it to pieces. It comes back. It's put together, and there's more stuff in the book that freaks her out. And the yeah. boy's obsessed that the, the Babadook is going to enter the house, it's going to come in, and the mother is dismissive of this until... Until she sees it. Well, yeah, I think, until she think starts she to get phone it. calls mm-hmm. and so on, and uh, goes to the police to report them. Yeah. And then lets it into the house. But yeah. I, I think that's about as far as we should I think talk that's probably about as far as we should I think as the IMDb description says, the rest of the film is made up from their experiences thereafter. <laughs> 
That's yeah. pretty much as far as it goes. Yeah, and it's it's a pretty intense film. Mm-hmm. I know the two of you weren't very impressed with Repulsion, but I think both of them are very intense in different ways and you are probably going to punch an awful lot of buttons for people who've had traumatic experiences in the past. Oh, hell yes. Uh, the, uh, these these are probably not films to be watched lightly. I mean, neither of them. Mm. No. I've seen quite a few comments and reviews online about how the boy couldn't act or they were just really annoying and so on. I find that hard to credit. Yeah, I I, I thought you know, the child who played Samuel, the son, was amazing. I thought he was yeah. a fantastic actor. Yeah. I, and yes, I mean, the kid was shrill, he was demanding and so on. He was meant to be. I mean, that wasn't the kid being a bad actor. And, you know, there's, again, yeah, I've seen reviews online that talk about, you know, the the fact that this somehow makes him monstrous or whatever. No, he's just, you know, a frightened, damaged child. Yeah, I found him very credible. Mm. Yeah. But I think one of the things that the film does beautifully is that, you know, yes, I mean, some some of the demanding side of things, you know, potentially makes him a bit unsympathetic to begin with. But as the film goes on, I mean, you you identify and empathise with him much more. Yeah. He's a thoroughly sympathetic character. It was also nice seeing a film in which the lead is a female. Yeah. And it's, it's a mother and child. And that's almost, they're almost... Yeah, almost exclusively so. There's not that many other characters that feature in the film. I mean, there's no. a few, most of whom are also women. Yeah, there, um, there, there's one man from her work who turns up and you think he's got to play an important role, but then he, you know, he, yeah. he, he isn't there for three quarters. There's the a film. fantastic scene, though, when she goes to a friend's birthday party. Oh, yes. And the, the mums are all in the kitchen and... Our, our main character, Amelia, the mother, is in there in in her sort of fraught state, and there's all the other mums are sort of it's it's almost like towering it's, above it's the her. Way it's aren't they? She's sitting down, and the rest of them are standing up, and it's like she's before a tribunal or something, and they're all standing there in judgment, in all her. their Bowden clothes, and looking down on her and. Uh, Saying how hard it is because they don't have time to go to the gym anymore, and uh, <laughs> yes, does, and, yeah. and then she quite understandably loses her shit. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a great scene. The other thing I really like about this film is it's a really claustrophobic film. Not all of it, but most of it takes place in the house. It's very limited in the sets it uses. It's very limited in the colour palettes it uses. It's quite a gloomy film. There's a real sense of oppression about it, which, you know, it makes it all the keener. Even down to the, um, it's one of the things that I found on the description saying that the house was very monochrome, very much like the colour scheme of the interior of the book. Yes. Apparently Jennifer Kent wanted to make the film in black and white, so using but couldn't get the backing to do that. So this this was sort of a compromise, that limited colour palette, and I think it probably actually works better. I think it does, yeah. And certainly got a few black and white old film shots in there yes. several times, so at least appease herself that way. Whoop, whoop, whoop. We're now going to move on to talking about the films in more depth and giving spoilers. So if you want to go away and watch the films before you listen to the rest, then be our guest. Otherwise, listen with us as we go into more in-depth talk of Repulsion and the Babadook. Duke, Duke, Duke. <laughs> we come back to Repulsion. Matt, you might just want to borrow this. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. Paul wanted a bottle opener, right? Oh, right. Yes, cool. <laughs> Do you want to say what that is? Yeah. But Paul, Paul has just handed Matt a uh, what looks like a large rifle or small artillery round. <laughs> that's, a, that's more small artillery. It's a fifty caliber shell. Yeah, that wouldn't go. In, that'd probably go in like a fifty. Yeah, fifty cal sniper rifle. Yeah, Robin gave it me for my birthday. Oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is very nice. 
Apparently he brought it back from the States. I'm not sure what they'd have said if they'd have found it in, on, in his baggage on the plane. But um, So it's a hollowed out 50, 50 calibre shell cut to make a bottle opener. opener. Yes. And it's a very good one, actually. It does the job very well. And it can kill a man at a range of a half mile. More than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember how much it was. I think it's something along the lines of... It's about three... a mile in American Sniper. Yeah. It's three quarters. Three quarters to yeah. a mile. You mean that about... documentary American Sniper? Yes. <laughs> What's your point? <laughs> I, I can't help but feel we've drifted off topic. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to need a drink to get through this bit. So. <laughs> it's alright Matt, you don't have to watch it. You don't have to talk about Good, it. Good, because it's certainly not on my view. Scott tells us it has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It does. 100% fresh. It, there, there is not a single bad review of it listed there. But How it is still Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> If you don't open the door, I'll bloody well break it down! <laughs> we got up to the point where she's locked up in her apartment and beginning to hallucinate. The hallucinations take a variety of forms. Uh, the main one, and this is repeated as an element you know, very briefly in the Babadook as well, is the walls around her cracking mm -hmm. uh, as sort of a, a reflection of her internal state as, as everything is falling apart. Mm. Yeah, she does make, this is one thing, that I, um, one of the points that I would credit the film for actually doing something good, that she does mention we should really repair that crack in the wall. Yes. Mm. Doesn't show the crack at the time. Mm. And then the crack in the, um, the different times when it does appear changes direction. Yes. And she also sees it in the pavement. She stood watching it one time yeah. in the pavement. Mm -hmm. and she's, yeah, she, she's out on the street just watching it obsessively. Yeah. The, um, but the bit that did really make me stand up and go, oh, wow, was when she flirts and the light switch on. Turn the light switch on. And then crack! Oh, yes. The wall yeah. opens up. Yes. So do you just want to run through what happens there, Scott? Yeah. What, how, how the film... Well, I mean, the, 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 other, the, the other sort of things that happen to her are the other things that she hallucinates. As we mentioned, this uh, builder or workman that she encountered before, and he starts appearing. She, she first sees him in the flat when she's uh, shutting a cupboard door and suddenly sees him reflected in the mirror behind her with one of the few jump scares in the film I've actually really enjoyed. <laughs> uh, and you only see him for a fraction of a second. Uh, she then has a number of... Um, every time she goes to sleep. Yeah, every time she goes to sleep, she has these nightmare kind of relivings, I, I think, of, of being raped. Um, that, you know, the man appears... Uh, and and they're, they're these horrible scenes and they're, they're done absolutely silently. I mean, you can see her mouth screaming, but there is no sound. Apart from the tick. Uh, top, tick, of, tick yeah, of the clock, top. yeah. Then, yeah, obviously there's all the stuff with the rabbit rotting in there and, you know, the, the house falling more and more into disarray. The walls uh, becoming like clay. Yeah, that's right. And and there's this bit... Initially, you know, she's walking down, you know, looking at this clay-like wall and a couple of hands reach out. That was very cool, I thought, mm -hmm. the bit where the hand's coming out of the wall. Yeah. yeah. And then later on, yeah, there's another scene where she's just walking down the corridor and it's just filled with arms reaching out yeah. to, to, to grab her. That's actually an almost direct lift. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it from... Uh, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Uh, there's almost exactly the same scene in that. No, I've not seen that. So I think there was probably a conscious nod to it. Hmm. But it was also it's also an escalation from what had happened earlier, and it represents yeah. her final going into a catatonic state. Yes. But in between, you know, all all of these events, this man who's been flirting with her comes round and knocks on the door, wants to get in. Eventually, you know, when she doesn't let him in, she's he's a bit worried about her. Or. There might be a bit more to it than that. Uh, he breaks the door down, uh, 
and uh, you know, Carol just smashes his head in with a candlestick. Dumps the body in the bath, goes back to you know, hallucinating. Uh, then a little while later... <laughs> <laughs> Enough of that, I'll go back to hallucinating. Yeah, I've, got, I've got delusions to worry about, don't you know? <laughs> then a little while later, uh, the landlord comes round because he hasn't been paid the rent, uh, finds the door partly boarded up, where Carol's repaired it earlier, smashes it open, comes in. I find this a really disturbing scene. You know, he goes from, uh, you know, mm. first of all, complaining a little bit about the state of the flat, and then, you know, putting on this big show of uh, being concerned about her and wanting to talk about things and so on. Wanting to get uh, in her pants. Yeah, th that's right, and using this basically as a, a launching pad to try to rape her. And at that point, uh, she grabs hold of a straight razor that she's got around, oh, the straight razor that belongs to uh, her sister's lover, and uses it to slash the landlord to death. In, in really quite a bloody scene. And then just tucks the body under the sofa. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. The, the, there's also the shifting dimensions of the house as well, which uh, yeah, I thought were very significant. The fact that you know the, the, the living room grows larger during some of these delusions, mm -hmm. you know, as if she's regressing to childhood. I guess Plansky would be glad that all rape victims don't have a razor to hand. <laughs> yeah, yes. Now, this is one of the really uncomfortable things about this film. Or all his films, in fact. Well, or but, but this particularly film. this film. I mean, it's, it's kind of odd in some respects, because, you know, for 1965, this was a very aware film when it came to sort of the effects of predatory male sexuality on, on vulnerable women. For it to be made by Roman Polanski, who then, you know, ten odd years later would end up having to flee the US after uh, raping a 13-year-old girl. And, you know, has not been able to sit fit in, foot in the US since then. I mean, th there seems to be, at the very least, a degree of irony there. Yeah, and a great degree of hypocrisy yeah. with everybody lauding his films. And yet, you know, uh, other celebrities... I mean, we've got the U-Tree investigation over here in Britain... Uh, which is looking into all sorts of people, particularly from the 70s. And yet, Polanski is totally overlooked in this. I mean, yeah. I know he's not in Britain, so you know, the British law can't touch him. But, you know, we've got similar cases in America. But given the number of episodes of Top of the Pops they can now show from the 70s, amounts to about three, I should think, <laughs> that they wouldn't blink at showing a Polanski film. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it, it is quite odd. Repulsion ends up with, you know, uh, Carol uh, in the flat, uh, in a catatonic state, her sister and her boyfriend coming back from holiday, uh, finding her there, finding the bodies, the neighbours milling around and, um, uh, you know, in, in shock over what's happened. But then there's this, this shot in the end where it pans around the flat and goes around to this old family photograph. We've seen this photograph in passing before, but it's this... A photograph, and we see Carol as a young girl, uh, staring in a kind of a combination of kind of shock and and horror uh, at a man who may well be her father, or at least an older male relative in the photograph. I was going to say disgust, because it's yeah. a very almost like a glare. And what what became apparent to me afterwards was in the last kind of rape hallucination that she has is not the builder in that, it's that man in the photograph. Yeah, that's why I was thinking that it was actually, that um, I guess I hadn't twigged because it was, again, you only see him briefly in each yeah. sequence. I thought it was the father in all of the preceding no. shots. No, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure it was the builder in the other ones. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, so, so, you know, it sort of brings around the fact that it, I've seen, you know, criticisms of repulsion online, or at least, you know, analyses of it, that talk about about, about being sexual, repre about sexual repression. And it's patently not. It's about a woman who, you know, has suffered a childhood full of sexual abuse that, you know, she has not, you know, had any way of dealing with. And, you know, it's now, you know, after a few triggers, it's, you know, consuming her. Yeah, I, I found, you know, the portrayal of that and the portrayal of, you know, her mind turning against her to be, you know, simply one of the most horrific things I've ever seen on film. Mm. Yeah, so I think the the criticism both me and Paul had was the beginning is far too goddamn boring and takes far mm. too much. It, it's, it succeeds in a setup. It's good if you're doing it in a novel, but in a film where you're just sitting, trudging through it, endlessly waiting for something to goddamn happen, <laughs> it's boring as hell. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can't help but you know disagree on every possible level for that. No, no. Like looking back in retrospect, yes, it does work. Yeah. But trudging through it for the first time, you think, Christ, when is this going to end? And back to the Babadook. Mm hmm. Yeah, the decent one. I think we've said that enough now, Matt. <laughs> and just, just in case our, our audience was skipping forward. No, you're right. We can't say it too much. Okay. <laughs> right. um, the core, I think, the core spoiler in this one is you have to take um, take particular notice of the line in the book that says, "I'll make you a deal. The more you try to ignore me, the stronger I'll get." Yes. Because that's that's pretty much where the whole end scene turns and becomes well, suddenly makes sense. But but it's also you know what the Babadook actually is. Mm -hmm. And what is the Babadook? Uh, the Babadook is her unresolved grief. Well, it's a combination of her unresolved grief and the is sort of anger, the misdirected anger that she is directing at her son. Yeah, uh, the anger and depression and yeah. grief. Yeah. You see, this this is where we probably interpret was it a was it a supernatural force at work or not. As far as I was concerned, it was. You see, I, I personally, as a film viewer, I don't care. I, I you know, it, it, for me, it works in a metaphorical sense. You know, I see the Babadook as you know an embodiment on the screen of what she's going through. Uh, the fact that you know both she and her son seem to experience it seems to indicate that there was some kind of you know almost objective reality to it. But I think, you know, personally, I think that's completely unimportant to the film. When well, we see her. Almost becoming the Babadook, don't we? Well, she's possessed she's, by it. Yes. Yeah. 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 She ends up um, having to throw it up in the basement. It makes the question: Well, was, was there ever an outside force, or was it always her? Um, well, the book had to come from somewhere because she didn't recognise it. But yeah, it, yeah. But did she create it? But did the book? Yeah. Did the book actually exist? Yeah. You know, mm. Again, I don't think these things are important. Um, no, but they're interesting to discuss, Scott. That's what we're here for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. But but I I think you know. For me, for what's important about the film uh, and you know, about presenting that particular metaphor, you know, personally, I don't find it important as to whether that's real or not. Well, um, okay. that, that, that was half the fun, Dis actually, for me going yeah, back. I think it's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was actually fun going back and thinking of it. Well, was this all in her head? Is this a way you could interpret that she was just seeing things? And I almost went back to each instance in my mind thinking, well, the car, was it a case of that the kid suddenly invents the, um, invents the monster in his head, therefore she then reacts to it thinking she's seen it? And and so forth. And just, it just so happens that a hat and the coat are in the right position in the, in the police station. So let's just move on with the story and say that yes. uh, things escalate... 
Yeah, I mean, when the book turns up I, again on the doorstep, I, the, we, we mentioned there's some additional material in there, but the additional mm -hmm. material that's in there is, you know, her uh, strangling the family dog, Poor uh, dog. killing the killing her son, and then slitting her own throat. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is you know fairly powerful stuff, especially um, for a pop-up book that yeah. was you know, that becomes animated. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, rather good. I, I, and and then you know as things do escalate, I and mean, she you know she does kill the dog, mm -hmm. and you know this sort of starts us thinking you know is is the rest of this going to happen? And if the kid wasn't a badass, she'd have probably killed him as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, because all these these kind of things that he's been making and these weapons and so on, you know, he's he's actually gone as far as booby trapping the seller. Yeah. Now, the, the cellar is a really important... I mean, mm -hmm. we haven't really touched on the cellar, uh, but the cellar is where Amelia's been keeping all of her dead husband's belongings, mm -hmm. and it's sort of the focus of her unresolved grief, both, you know, it, it's, it's sort of an embodiment, it's a metaphor for it. It's buried in the house, and it's buried in her psyche. It's all the stuff that she doesn't want to deal with and think about. That's where her son lures her down, trips her up, uh, and then just ties her up, and almost forces her to, you know, have to um, face this grief. Yeah, and ultimately she does kind of free herself and goes to well, kill she, him. But she, yeah, she frees herself at the point at which she realizes that she is actually capable of killing her son. She's tried to kill him at the time, strangling him. Mm -hmm. And then there's kind of a strange ending yeah. after after the the kind of climax where they kind of confront the Babadook or she confronts the, her the greatest fears and I so on. I love this ending. It's <laughs> almost it reminded me of Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> really, um, with uh, Sean and his mate out in the uh, in the shed. Yeah, um, it's there's her and her son cel actually celebrating his birthday for the first time ever. They go out in the back uh, garden and digging up worms in this bowl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then she goes in. You see, I was I was expecting it to be the fulfilment of the almost prophetic news uh, news. Uh, report that they'd seen earlier. That's what I thought yes. when I first saw it. Yeah, he's got. Oh, I'm waiting for her to stab the kid. I'm waiting for her to suddenly flip out. And no. Yeah. Where's she going? Down the steps into the cellar? Mm-hmm. With a bowl of worms? A cellar that has many, many locks on the door, I noticed. Yeah. Going down there to feed the Babadook. <laughs> yes. Now, I didn't notice this, but reading online, people pointed out that when she comes back, the camera um, focuses in on her, and you can see dirt between her teeth. Implying she had been eating the worms. Yeah, I, I, I didn't I've seen that. No, I've no seen, I didn't. No, I, I'd seen people mention that, and I went back and checked, and it's not there. So, damn. Uh, so that would have suddenly made a different angle on it. But yeah, yeah, but 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 no, I. But I mean, the, the Babadook's down there, or her husband's memories are down there, or yeah, you know, or the, the fact the, that she can't grief. get rid of that emotional well, illness, mental illness, or or grief, anger, and so on, and you know, but she can live with it. Exactly. I mean, the the, the whole thing is about coming to terms with it. Mm. But, you know, what 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 has made the Babadook so dangerous is the fact that she's never actually accepted the grief. As soon as she does so, then it becomes less of a monster it becomes less of a threat to her and her son but it's still always going to be there and, and it, can't, it can't touch her either because she just leans back away from it it yeah. doesn't get to the point where it can actually physically reach out and grab her but it's still trying oh yeah yeah mm. but that's the point yeah it's, it, you know, it's about her making her peace with the babadook and you know finding a way of living with it now when i first saw it there was a bit in there that really threw me, and I still don't fully make sense of it. The tooth? When she pulls her tooth out. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was kind of 
symbolic that this is the point at which you know she's contemplating killing her son uh, i i think it's just after she's killed the dog just after she's killed the dog yeah. Yeah. yeah her son at this point has been this kind of rotten abscess in her life you know this reminder of her dead uh, husband you know and everything and so i think this is almost like her you know it's it's like that you know, biblical quote about, you know, if thine eye offends thee, pluck it out. Or if you've got toothache, get rid of the tooth. Exactly. So, you know, she's pulling the tooth out and that's symbolic of her making the decision to kill her son. Because watching it again last night, I noticed how many times she rubs her jaw yeah. in pain from this tooth. Right from the outset of the film, she's it, it's troubling her. But on first viewing, I didn't really pick up on that. I didn't. Um, yeah. But, I mean, there is a connection, or some people draw a connection, between having an infection particularly in teeth or in some other part of the body which poisons the body and leads to uh, what yeah. might be, uh, you know, psychosis or, you know, a blood poisoning mm -hmm. compar comparable to a mental illness. I'm not a doctor, so I looked this up on uh, on the internet, but, I mean, there's loads of stuff about medicine on the internet that, you know, I'm not sure you can take all of it as genuinely true. Well, but I, did... I, I, I don't know. I found instructions there for removing my own gallbladder and she, we that were just right. trying, yeah. Good. It didn't cause any, like, lasting mental deterioration? Not, not noticeable. <laughs> there was a Dr. Cotton uh, who passed away in 1933 uh, and was a doctor in the 20s, a psychiatrist at Jersey State Hospital, who believed that these infections of the body in teeth and various places could lead to mental illness and the removal of these things could cure people. So the list of things that he removed include testicles, ovaries, gallbladders, stomachs, spleens, cervix, cervixes, uh, colons, and especially dentistry. I'd seen this in a film recently, and I'm trying to remember where. Well, the guy, he does appear in an episode of uh, Boardwalk Empire. That's it, yes. Is it? Right. Yeah, yes. How about that in a Call of Cthulhu scenario? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> well, you've been doing something similar in Unknown Armies to a degree. Yeah. What, what's that, Matt? Your character's gone insane. You need a little while in the asylum, don't you? <laughs> Under Dr. Cotton. <laughs> He'll cure you. I, I suddenly keep thinking about... What are all those teeth troubling you, sir? I just suddenly keep thinking I'd rather be in um, Dead and Lo uh, Dracula Dead and Loving It. Yeah, have another enema. That sounds, <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great that cure. That went right over my head, sorry. The, uh, the Mel Brooks film? Oh, right. Oh. Yeah, um, the, the doctor, when it's uh, when he's in the, uh, in the asylum trying to treat Renfield, it's always, yeah, have another enema. Which film's this? Dracula Dead and Loving It. Oh, I've not seen that one. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. it's, it's okay. Try not to lose sight of the fact that this is ostensibly a gaming podcast. Shall we talk about things that we can you know, lift from these films for games? One, one thing I found it was inadvertently um, that I managed to do, uh, thinking about Concrete Cow, actually, was one thing that happened in, um, happened in my game, uh, the World War Cthulhu game I ran in the, um, in the afternoon, was how you can turn images that on their own seem to be fairly normal, fairly innocent, like the crack in the wall, oh, we should repair that, right. and turn it into something horrific that then triggers a, um, triggers a sanity loss later. And one of the uh, examples was fairly early on, on the scenario that one of the characters had a vision of the, the grand ballroom in Carcosa. Um, saw the black and white marble floor, all the dancers moving around them, etc., etc. 
and then later when they ended up in a bomb shelter, um, she just, uh, the character decides, right, I'm going to um, try to do something that basically might hope regain some sanity, try and calm down. I'll start dancing. No, hang on a shit. Holy sh- uh, shit! Then I thought, oh no, no, that, that triggers a that triggers a point of sand loss as you basically have visions back to the uh, back to the ballroom. So I'll, I'll sit down over at the uh, over at the chessboard and have a game. And oh shit, the floor! Another <laughs> point. Yeah, we just like, yeah, actually that works it, completely it inadvertently. But it was just it, there's little moments that suddenly um, take something say innocent in isolation and then makes it. Reflect something else. It's something I, I, I like doing quite a lot in games. Um, and it's a bit of advice I think I picked up from the Unknown Armies book, where they're talking about you know trying to set motifs for games, just certain recurring elements, certain recurring visual elements. <laughs> and so I, I, I'll bring those in. You know, I, I'll introduce them you know fairly subtly, and then try to weave them into horrific stuff. So like in the Unknown Armies game we've been playing recently, just lots of stuff to do with triangles. Yes, I'm still wondering where the hell that's going. Yes. <laughs> The three-lobe burning eye. Oh, and the three-lobe burning mic. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there's quite a lot of stuff that we can learn from both these films about the presentation of delusions. Mm -hmm. That Uh, seems to be, yeah, key to to these films in gaming terms. And, yeah, I mean, going back to that idea of motifs, you know, the fact that there is this, you know, particularly with repulsion, there is this, you know, thematic purity to uh, the delusions that are presented. There are these certain, you know, motifs that have been set up, but they all tie in very much as representations of the abuse that Carol suffered as a child, uh, and then sort of play out and turn into horror as the film progresses. Cute little fluffy uh, fluffy bunny becomes rotten carcass on on a plate. Yeah. And also, well, it's reincorporating things from her background, in in the the main character's background in in Repulsion that that come out in her delusions and hallucinations. So, I mean, if we're talking Call of Cthulhu, then it's going to the character's background uh, backstory and picking out elements of that to bring in her hallucinations. And the the character may not be aware that they're hallucinations. Mm. So if they're using, I remember walking the waste when um, one character was using a radio trying to communicate with the team that were out in the field and picked up his wife's voice because he'd already talked about <laughs> his wife. <laughs> But, um, but, but they, by that they, point, the radio was already already smashed anyway, and he didn't realise this. But they but. use exactly the same thing in The Walking Dead. Oh right! Oh, of course, yeah. the telephone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Disconnected telephone with Rick sitting there talking to his dead wife on yes. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean that's a yeah. The thing I was also thinking, which I should have mentioned, is one of the other good moments in the film um, that I found was a way that you can twist um, description between what a player sees and then what the uh, what the, a particular character sees and then what the other characters see. Oh, that's interesting. That's, yeah. As far as um, dear Carol is concerned, she is walking home in a zombie-like state and completely misses the car crash. Yeah. Yes. And it just blanks it completely. Yeah. It's not yeah. part of her world. Yeah. yeah. It's not only the weird, wacky delusions that you might impose on them, it's that they totally ignore really important things. Mm-hmm. Possibly threats as well. Yeah, I mean, possibly there's a ghoul there sort of staring at them on the stairs and they just walk along and don't notice it or they just think it's, you Another know, person. some guy stood there. Well, they're just in such a fugue state that the outside world just doesn't exist for them in that, in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly I've had characters where, you know, they get in the car to, to, and, and they're driving away and we'll play out that scene for a little bit. And then the other characters, the other players will say, well, they're going outside to their car and they see the insane character sat in the car with the engine not running and they're just sat at the wheel thinking they've driven away. 
Um, so you can do all sorts of fun things like that. But it is when the group get together that it becomes hard to impose delusions on one person because, you know, everybody else is there. Yeah, I, and and I wonder whether this is something that we could lift from the Babadook. The idea, I mean, we were talking before, you know, at least I was saying, you know, the fact that, you know, whether or not these delusions have got any external reality, you know, is not necessarily important. But, you know, if you present it in the game, if you present the characters' delusions in the game to everyone, um, you know, particularly if everyone is in a, a, you know, a fairly damaged state of mind, you know, you can play an awful lot with, you know, whether or not that's real. Certainly, if you've got several characters that are, you know, insane and subject to delusions, you can give them a shared one. Yeah. yeah. Like that, the scene in the police station where it's just, it's a hat, a coat and some gloves that have just been left hanging on, the, um, hanging on a peg. That's suddenly turning, um, in our own mind, that becomes the Babadook. Yeah. Whereas to everyone else, eh, hat. But I, I wonder whether you know, we we could kind of push that further. Whether you know, in the game that you know, no, without even necessarily coming up with any pretext or explanation, you know, because there isn't really one in the Babadook, but just sort of present these characters, your know, internal turmoils, delusions, or whatever externally. You're presenting these these horrific images and so on, or you know these, this threatening presence or whatever that is very much part of the character's own trouble background, the trauma they've suffered. But you then you know it turn that into something that is an external reality, whether it's just the fact that it's a you know a coincidental reflection of what they're feeling inside, whether they've somehow manifested it and so on, is is again I think probably unimportant. But I think, you know, as long as it feels thematically right in the game, you can you can make that really quite horrifying. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I've said this time and again with Call of Cthulhu, we shouldn't be so quick to explain things. You do, do something like that. You know, don't worry about, you know, is it real or is it not? Don't worry about, oh, it's because, you know, such and such happened. You know, they summoned Yogg-Sothoth and, you know, suddenly their, their delusions are real or whatever. Doesn't matter. You know, stuff like this is much scarier if it's inexplicable. As arbiter of the world or whatever, as keeper GM, you've got to have, you know, when, when they decide to interact with it... You as, know, as long as you're consistent, you don't have to have a... a yeah, but if you don't it. know what is actually going on yourself, it's very hard to then be consistent. You just end up making shit up. No, not necessarily, as long as you're, you know, as long as once you make something up, you stick with it and you're, you're consistent with it, make it feel real. To make it consistent and feel real, you've got to well, not necessarily explain everything about it, but you've got to have a grounding in it. Not necessarily. Yourself, I mean, this is, otherwise... this is, well, and this is what we were talking about with the Robert Aikman episode before. The fact that you know, as long as all of these elements kind of fit together thematically, as long as they feel consistent with each other, then you know, having a you know reductive explanation for it is unnecessary. Uh, and you know, it sometimes you know deflates it. You know, it's, it's kind of the equivalent of the Scooby, you know, at the end of a Scooby Doo episode, pulling the rubber mask off and finding it's Old Man Jenkins. You know, oh, it's really because someone summoned Yogg-Sothoth. No, but then those Scooby Doo explanations never made sense to me, <laughs> <laughs> and I would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those pesky investigators. <laughs> I think we're talking in the abstract, Scott, and I'd have to have a concrete example to, yeah. to really uh, to I, think, I, I, think I, that one over. I, I, I think there's a game brewing out of this. But, um, 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, for me, the most horrifying part of both of these, uh, which sort of ties in with these delusions and, and so on, is the fact that in both cases, you know, the monster or the horror or whatever is inside the protagonist. It's, you know, it's part of them. It's something they can't escape. Uh, and, you know, that, that for me is, you know, just the most absolutely horrific thing. You know, in a Call of Cthulhu game or whatever, you know, if there's an external monster or whatever, in the end you might be able to run away from it, defeat it or whatever. But in the end, if it's part of you, if it's part of your own mind, what the hell do you do about it? There is no escape. Another one of the things that makes these films so effective for me is the fact that the protagonists in them feel like real people. They're connected to the people around them, they're connected to the real world, and they're not... I mean, I've played too many role-playing games where the characters are kind of ciphers, where they, you know, they, 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 there's no one in the world they care about, there's nothing they care about around them, there's nothing really anchoring them to the world, and there's there's... You know, it's it's like this Teflon coating that you know stops them uh, from being hurt. But the whole point is that you know what makes these films effective is that the characters are vulnerable. They are yeah, they are vulnerable, hurt. and they've got family around them of one type or another, and then they're both kind of isolated in their homes. They're both kind of locked in, essentially. Yeah, and it gives the the, the, the films and you know it, it, you bring this into gaming, you know the equivalent games, much more emotional depth. I think that you know if you do have these connections, if the characters, you know, if the characters have got something to lose, if they've got stuff that they care about. Um, yeah, it, it it makes them dynamic, interesting. Well, that's the importance of creating some sort of backstory for your character. Yeah, I think not just that the. The, the GM can screw you over with it, but it's um, they're yeah. going to screw you over anyway. Yeah. When they screw you over, it'll be more fun. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of, yeah, if, if I don't have any family members, the GM can't use them against me. But having them used against you in a horror game is most of what you're sitting at the table for. You're mm. sitting there to experience horror. If you protect yourself from that, you might as well not be playing. The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. That wraps up our discussion of Babadook and Repulsion. I'm glad you put the good one first. Yes, <laughs> we can't be said enough. We, we we shall have to agree on uh, to differ on this, and we'll also have to agree that the two of you are objectively wrong. Hold on, let's have a vote on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the majority have spoken. Uh, yeah, the, the tyranny of the uneducated masses. Screw Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> all they what, for. Whatever gets you off, Paul. <laughs> all they're good for is throwing in the bin. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, yes, well. I think me and Matt have made our opinions clear. Uh, but the Babadook, I thought was great. Yes, thoroughly seconded. Uh, I think we all agreed on that. We can all yeah. agree on that uh, one. Yes, it's the weaker of the two films, but I'll, I'll give you the fact <laughs> oh, that come on! <laughs> As you've probably noticed, we're playing around a little bit with the format of these review episodes. If you've got an opinion on it, uh, if you think we're doing something wrong or... or God forbid, even something right. Let us know on social media or via a comment on Blasphemous Tomes. I mean, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And this show should be about long enough that if you put it on as you press play on Repulsion, 
You should be getting something vaguely interesting by the end of the show. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. We should have done a riff track. <laughs> right. I think that's it for tonight. It's good night from a bored viewer. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a hateful glower from me. And farewell from someone who's never going to watch that fucking boring film again. Hello? BlasphemousTones.com mm.